Sorry? No, no. <laughs> if it's not snowing, it's not too cold. <laughs> I'm English. <laughs> is everybody comfortable? This is a good temperature? Yeah? Okay. <laughs> Thank you. If you see your fall asleep, I'm getting So, uh, yeah. <clears throat> some lessons we can uh, learn in meditation and uh, that are relevant for our, our daily lives. About what? Uh, there will be a question time after the talk. Okay. No, I'm just starting. Just <laughs> That was just clearing my throat, that was. It's not warming up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, some things we can, we can learn or, or bear in mind. In meditation, most uh, all of the difficulties and the uh, um, blessings that, that we experience uh, uh, attributable to, to three particular uh, factors uh, which are interrelated and these are attitude or intention and uh, attention and energy so attitude or intentionality which is just the basic bent or inclination of the heart whether we are in a hurry uh, whether we are keen and interested whether we're a bit bored, whether we are uh, excited, or whether we're loving, or whether we are feeling grumpy. So naturally, you know, this is the one of the reasons why, of course, you, with meditation, is only certain factors of the eightfold path. So the other factors of the eightfold path, eightfold path help us to develop certain clarity and uh, of intention. Intentional Pali word is chetana. So intention is much more than just a, a deliberate decision to do something. It's the fundamental inclination of the heart. So your intention is not, I'm intending to go to the shops, or I'm intending to go to the airport. Uh, your intention is intention based upon uh, ill will, or fear, or negativity, or so it's an inclination, it's not a specific topic, it's a general inclination. Or it can be the inclination, the intention towards learning, towards giving, towards serving, towards loving kindness. You know? So we have these overriding intentionalities. You know? uh, and it's important to keep checking in uh, and be honest. When we're feeling grumpy, Irritable, fed up, impatient. It's better we know about it. <laughs> well, I'm trying to bluff. Then we can say, okay, what's the problem? I'm trying too hard, or feeling overworked, or I'm feeling offended. Let's just better clear that and work with that, because otherwise it's going to affect everything I do. If I don't, if I let that mood stay there, then everything I do and say will be coming from that particular mood. It's just like you're poisoning 
your own air you're poisoning the air you breathe if you don't have uh, uh, the right intention because the heart intention is, is, the, is the natural language of the heart yeah? it's not a verbal language, it's an emotional language yeah? but it is always, it's a very important language because this is the basis of our karma karma is intention karma is the uh, consequences the cause and the consequences of intention simply speaking, karma is not about whether you were a, a soldier in your past life or a queen or a Napoleon Bonaparte or whatever you were in your past life karma is about the way the Buddha taught karma was about your intentions right now because you better know those because those are going to affect what you would experience in the next moment, in the next day, in the next year and even the next life karma is intentions and it's also the cause of intentions which may be because of bodily sickness it may be because of things that have affected us in a previous day or year but right now we are the, the mind is picking that up and following it yeah. so the point about karma is that karma in Buddhism is not predestination it's not destiny karma means that if we're clear we can develop our intentions based upon what's good and bright and wholesome or we could base our intentions upon what's dark or afflicted yeah. now whether that sense of hurt or irritation is because of something somebody else did you know, he insulted me, therefore I have every right to feel offended. That's true. But don't let that be the cause of your actions. Because then it becomes karma. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, so, so it's really developing that, that independence of heart. So you try to, to get clearer look at where you're coming from if you're coming from a bad place get to know that check out what you're, what you're being affected by and if you're, if you're being offended or hurt or something's been unpleasant to you then you place the intention of patience there you place the intention of, of uh, detachment there let, let it go, let it pass you place the intention of kindness towards yourself there you know, so that if somebody's done you harm yeah, that's the time when you need to place a skillful intention in your mind in order to relieve that harm yeah. otherwise it's likely that you'll be acting from that place of dispute or argument and then you start to create karma So this is the, the this is a long story here. This is the story of the paramita, isn't it? The ten paramita about developing skillful intentions, skillful inclinations. No matter what anybody else is doing, saying, I can develop patience or morality or kindness or determination or truthfulness, uh, and therefore I'm not going to pick up somebody else's rubbish and make problems myself with it. <laughs> yeah. 
Now, it's not it's never going to be the case that you can live in a world where nobody's throwing rubbish at you. As the Dhammapada says, there never was and never will be someone who wasn't blamed. There never was, was and never will be somebody who doesn't receive blame. Even the Buddha received blame. People tried to kill the Buddha. His own cousin tried to kill him seven times. Yeah, so the Buddha could have got a bit uppity and fed up with all that and harumph, you know. And, but he said, that's his karma. I'm not going to make it my karma. Yeah. My intentions are just to, you know, abide in truthfulness, in peace, in equanimity, let these things pass. Yeah. So this is a very important teaching to not let the world and what the world throws at you affect your intentions. Don't let it infect your heart. And that indeed is a practice. Because most of us find, you know, something happens you get a reaction. You can't help it. So you stop, check that. And certainly meditation is a time when we often find ourselves almost reviewing some of the things that are still left with us. You know, the bits that are stuck. The problems, the anxieties, the uh, uh, disappointments of the day. Feelings of guilt or regret. These tend to be revealed as we, as we meditate because in a way you're lessening the external activity and you look, you begin to be aware of the internal activity of the heart which is these, this quality of effect and intention. So your intentions are kind of confused, agitated, uncertain, disappointed, fretful. Okay, meditation as we all know is not dropping into joy and bliss as soon as you close your eyes. Is it? <laughs> no, I thought it wasn't. <laughs> so it's not just me then. It's often this work of feeling the disappointment or the tiredness and say, okay, that's that. And now breathe in and breathe out through that. Sit through that. Open up in that. Find your bodily sense. Establish first of all your bodily sense becomes more upright, brighter, clearer and you start to find a place where you can turn the mind around. Yeah. You can turn the mind around. It finds a place where it feels settled and comfortable. This is why it's always important to, to bear in mind when you meditate, you know, you're looking for comfort. Now it may seem strange, like you're sitting upright with your legs crossed on the floor, looking for comfort. <laughs> I want to be in bed looking for comfort. But you're in bed, you, you kind of fall asleep. And you don't get the sense of the vitality and the energy moving through your body, which you can do very well once you learn to sit upright, you train the body to sit upright, and you develop the, the faculties, the, the muscles, or the agility to, to do that. It's a, very, it's a place where you look for where you feel the sense of real comfort. And it's partly emotional, partly physical sense of there's a place here that's happy for me, that feels like it's mine, it's good. It can be the case you start with a deliberate good intention of goodwill towards yourself, loving kindness towards yourself, appreciation of your own virtues. Yeah? So you bring good energy through the mind into the body. 
camp and then with, as you get that, that feeling, that, that good energy from the mind, you breathe it through your whole body. Just let this body experience goodwill like you're giving it a massage. It can be the case you start with a good bodily energy and, and work through the mind, but the body and the mind have to work together. And the, the fundamental quality in this is, is developing uh, the intention to, 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 to investigate, to purify one's intentions, to acknowledge the unskillful, doesn't, we're not getting a tribunal over it, just recognizing, you know, there are uh, negative feelings in my mind. Okay, let's work with that, let's clear that. And then, then meditation is a place where you, you start to do that. Not through, through thought, not through justification, but through working on the energy of it. That's why energy is very much associated with the whole process of intention. Second aspect is attention, or manasikara, the Pali word, manasikara. Um, Manasikara, attention, is this ability that the mind has to have a focus. Yeah. So when people are drunk, their attention is just really, you know, scattered. So the mind can't hold a focus, it keeps collapsing. When people go psychotic, their attention just collapses. When people are... Uh, um, go manic, manic depressive people, your, your attention can't stay steady, can't find a, a, a secure steady place. Um, people are hyperactive, your attention just scatters every which way. Yeah? It means the ability to sustain focus. Naturally, if your focus is, uh, is sustained, the sense of calming that occurs with that, the steadying that occurs with that, because the scattering of attention scatters your energy around. You know, attention is linked to energy. Yeah. Yeah. Now, it's often very much the case in our daily lives that our attention is perforce is scattered because things are moving fast. If you watch television, you, you probably, if you actually calculate it, you recognize that an image on a television screen lasts maybe three seconds before the next image. Flash, 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 flash. Yeah? It's like going like that. So your mind operates at that speed. Flash, 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 flash. <laughs> That's why it's the way it is. That's why it's like that. <laughs> if you're driving a car, your attention has to be Look in your rear mirror, look at the traffic lights, look at the pedestrians, look at the other, look out for that truck, watch the speed limit, watch what's happening, you know, watch, you know, so your attention is scattering. You can't just sit there and look spaciously out, out the wind, out through the wind, windscreen, can you? <laughs> your attention moves around. So most of our daily lives, our attention, our attention is actually moving around quite, 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 Briskly, yeah. and uh, that isn't a problem, but it's something you want to you want to uh, uh, counteract when you meditate, because naturally it uses up energy, 
and naturally you don't see anything really in depth, you just get surface, superficial um, awareness. So the, the faster your attention moves, the less sustained its focus is, then the, the, the less depth there is to awareness. Now awareness, we might say, is the basic function of consciousness, the ability to be receptive, to be perceptive. So if your attention is scattered, you don't really get very clear uh, receptivity because you're on to the next thing. People hold a conversation, you, you know, yeah, what are you saying? I've forgotten. Excuse me, just a moment. The attention jumps all over the place. And after you've walked away, you think, what are you talking about? I've forgotten. <laughs> it's gone already. <laughs> because the mind didn't get any real deep awareness of that. Now, you know, now when it comes to uh, learning about yourself, you want to really have a, a de- in-depth open, receptive, steady awareness. So you want to actually steady, you know, sustain uh, an attention span. Now attention can be seen as both uh, um, uh, in terms of time, where the attention is moving quickly or slowly, and also in terms of its um, span. So you might be have attention that's focusing on a particular small point of, new, of newsprint on a page, like if you're a typesetter, you know, uh, or you can see the whole page, or you could, you know, so you can zoom in and zoom out. Yeah. So your, your attention can do that kind of, it can be microscopic or it can be macroscopic. Uh, so this, this faculty is also something we need to develop, you know, develop the flexibility of that. Um, by and large, I think for many people uh, living in the modern world, the attention is generally quite, quite cramped because we're, we're often dealing with quite small things, like fine details of things. Yeah? I was doing some um, editing and working on a book and I worked on this, this whole talk was on Nibbana and non-attachment talk and then I was, so as I got the talk, I edited it, got the words right and great typeset was looking at the design of the, the fonts and I'm looking at the letter N of Nibbana and thinking that, that N isn't quite straight enough, you know. And the word is saying, the Nibbana is like, let go. And at that moment, the meaning of the word is let go, and you're kind of getting reattached to the letter N of Nibbana. <laughs> you miss the meaning of the word altogether, you just get stuck on the, on the print. And you can see the eye is a very intolerant organ. You know? if, you look at a, if you look at a blank wall with your eyes, your eyes will immediately start to find a tiny little defect in the paintwork or the plasterwork. It's a very, it's, a, it's an organ that's very intolerant. Yeah? And normally it's our basic organ of attention is the eyes. Yeah? We look around, we see, we're driving, we're checking things out. Yeah? We even use that uh, as a talk about watching the breath or watching the mind or developing insight. Yeah? 
because it's the organ of the eye is the, generally the one that dominates your attention it leads your attention but it doesn't have to be so I found a quite a big change in practice when I started talking about listening to the mind giving and listening to the mind and when I started to get you know, developing mindfulness of breathing feeling the touch of the breath rather than watching it feeling the touch of it feeling the touch of it so touch you can attend to something with your touch, can't you? We don't do that very often unless you're, I don't know, what you'd be doing to, to if you're a masseur, you might do. Yeah. You're reading pulses, acupuncturists, you might have very attentive fingers. Most people's fingers are pretty stupid. You know, you just kind of punch digits, punch your mobile phone with it, that's it, really. Poke people with it. <laughs> But I, I, when I was in Canada one time, I saw some raccoons. The raccoon is the animal. And the raccoon has incredibly sensitive uh, fingers. So when it dips its hands into a river, it can feel the difference between a clam and a rock. That's very important because it can feed on the clams. It doesn't want to pick up a rock and bite that. So it's very, very attentive fingers. It's fingers like radishes, pink, bulbous fingers. You can feel between a rock and a clam. Now, if you're going to a fruit market, you know, you pick up an orange, and it feels too spongy. You pick up an apple, feels, you pick up a banana, feels too hard, it's not ripe. So that particular quality of tactile attention is a very interesting, useful one to, to bear in mind because um, the Buddha doesn't say watch the breath. He never says watch. He says be aware of the breath, be mindful of the breath, but he doesn't use a visual metaphor. So you look to see what kind of quality of attention will give you the best results. Now the nature of the visual field, visual focus, certain things that your eyes will always do is they'll tell you they experience distance. Yeah? So I look across here, now literally all I can see is black, the dark night, and there's these various colourful shapes, you know, blues and pinks and whites. You know. but my eye says, oh that person's sitting four meters away, she's sitting two and a half meters away. I get a sense of distance and perspective. The visual focus does that. Now if we painted a picture, you know, you painted a picture, every element of that picture would be on the same distance, wouldn't it, on the canvas. And yet we look at the picture and say, oh that's in the, that's the distance. And this is the foreground. If you don't have to decide, your eye will immediately do that. The eye and the brain link up and they create a sense of distance. What the eye can never do is create a sense of connection, of contact. It always says it's out there. I'm here and that's there. Yeah? 
Now, touch is completely different. When you touch something, it touches you. It's, it's, it's not distant. There's absolutely no distance whatsoever. All touch is immediately intimate, direct, personal. And because of that, touch, as we all know, is a very evocative experience. You know, when you stroke a cat, you're comfortable, stroke the cat. You shake somebody's hand, give somebody a hug, caress somebody, it's a very intimate, touched experience. We get pretty excited about it. Because what you touch, touches you. So immediately in that, in that experience, there's a sense of dissolving the boundaries between self and other. And there's an emotion that comes up with that. An emotion that comes up with that. Feeling of, uh, if it's an agreeable touch, <laughs> a feeling of happiness and affection and warm-heartedness. It's disagreeable, exactly the opposite. So, yeah, in our monastery we, we used to have a cat. This old, uh, cat who was, uh, who, uh, was just available to be touched. The cat was the only, per only creature in the monastery that didn't keep the precepts, didn't meditate, didn't develop any sense restraint, and we allowed the cat to be there because what the cat did was said, provide the sense of touch. Sense of touch is uh, a kind of um, difficult thing for people because you don't want to touch someone if you don't really feel good about them, you know. They might get the wrong idea. For the cat, everybody can touch the cat. Yeah? So we always agree the cat would come in, sit down, and we want to stroke the cat. So we were kind of people were getting a bit tense or argumentative. Well, this or that. We should do this. We shouldn't do that. Cat would come in. People would start to soften. Cat would wander around, sit in somebody's lap. You can't really have a hostile argument while you're stroking a cat. <laughs> so when the cat eventually died, the atmosphere in the monastery changed. <laughs> And after about two years, we thought, we'd better get another cat. <laughs> so we found a cat that was in need of a home, and we said, you can come, you come and live with us now, I breeze strokes the cat. <laughs> and they do the same, this is a kind of basic therapy, touch therapy, and they do the same thing Why people who are on their own will have a dog, they can pet, a cat they can stroke. Uh, they often bring dogs or cats into into old people's homes, they feel a sense of warmth and affection. So you develop that attention through the touch sense is very emotive. This is why I really recommend when you attend to your breathing, forget about watching it, just get to feel it moving through you. Get yourself to kind of like open up and trust this sensation because then you'll get the effective sense of happiness and ease and feeling uh, kind of a quality of, of, of warm-heartedness. And when it's happy and warm, then your mind will stay with it. If you're telling your mind, sit there, shut up, be quiet. You know, follow that breath. Keep at it. You know? Do you think the mind's going to want to behave? Oh, no. Meditate. As soon as it can, it will run away. 
Did you get angry with it? Get back. Watch that bread. Alright. Then you're not looking, it runs away again. But if you give it something that's uh, uh, warm and, and happy, the mind says, oh, I like that. So the way you attend very much affects the energy you get. And, uh, yeah, because you get a warm, happy energy. Also, both, uh, get the sense of the, your attention doesn't have to be pinpoint. So when we say be attentive, it doesn't mean you've got to get furrow your brows and, and when we say concentrate, it doesn't mean get tight. In fact, it's good to forget the word concentration altogether. This may sound radical as Samar Samadhi is a fact of the path, but I think the word Samadhi is not very well translated as concentration. It's an unfortunate thing because most of us concentrate, we tighten up in our heads. Your brow, your brow tends to burrow and concentrate. And uh, concent- Samadhi is not something that you do. Samadhi is not a verb, it's not an action of doing. It's a state, a result of feeling focused, feeling steady, feeling unified, feeling settled. This is Samadhi. So you feel the sense of steadiness and stability. And it comes around, and the Buddha explained this quite clearly. In one sutta, he says, well, if you abide with virtue, and you dwell in that, and you turn your attention towards that, then freedom from regret will occur to you. You don't have to keep pushing your doubts and worries away. It will happen to you. If your mind gets free of regret and remorse and anxiety, there's no need to make an effort to fit to settle into your body. Your, your, your mind will automatically settle there. If you're settling into your body, your bodily sense becomes relaxed, your mind will be happy. And when your mind is happy, there's no need to make an effort to concentrate. Your mind will be concentrated. A happy person's mind is concentration because it is settled, sitting, drinking the food. So it naturally settles. So this uh, quality of attention and intention, the right kind of steady, calming, uh, happy or, or generous intentions, and the right kind of attention are very crucial. So when we develop this attention, we might very well start with a particular point in your body where you feel the quality of well-being, and then you start to widen, spread it around. So there's no part of your whole body that is not given careful attention, caring attention. And one of the qualities that the Buddha, way the Buddha described the first jhana, which is the, the first level of samadhi, he said, there's not one part, not one part of your entire body that is not drenched, steeped, and suffused with the happiness that comes from non-attachment, from this practice of meditation. So you, you get your whole body, whole bodily sense. What I've been talking about is the, the body that you experience as energy, as vitality, as your sense of your body, 
there's nothing there that feels tight or cramped. And you give it attention, you move your attention around, you widen your attention, and you develop your intention. Now when we begin to recognize the power of that, then look into your daily life, what do you give your attention to? Be careful. <laughs> you know, there is a, if you look into the, the way the Buddha taught the Dhamma, he made a very strong point about you must develop some sense of vigilance over the senses. Don't let the senses run away. Don't keep guard over your senses. Be vigilant. Be, learn to restrain your senses so that your, your attention doesn't get drawn out and consumed by everything. Yeah. So you have the sense of ability to hold your atten attention to a suitable place. Now one of the um, skills we can develop in meditation is walking meditation. Walking meditation is a very good, very good way to learn <coughs> about developing an attention that is <coughs> quite wide. <coughs> so it's your whole body as you walk along, but you're learning to, 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 to also to keep it guarded. So when we do walking meditation, you, you're aware of your whole body as it walks, and what do you need to see when you do walking meditation? It's just the path in front, just so you don't fall, stumble into something. And you keep aware of the tactile sensations in your body as you touch the ground. You keep aware of the <coughs> kinesthetic, which is the way the muscles operate, the flow of the body as you walk along, the way the body shifts its, its uh, balance from one side to the other side as you walk. You feel that flowing of your body as you walk along. And you stay within that. Yeah? And you just let your eyes keep the sense of noticing whether anything obstructive is coming up. Otherwise you don't, don't run out through the eyes. So the eyes are really, for most people, are the main problem of where we, we get drawn out. And as you can see, as you can recognize in a city, things are eye-grabbing. Yeah? The advertisements are eye-grabbing. They're designed to grab your eyes. Yeah. Every time we come through an airport, I have to walk through, through stalls of Johnny Walker, yeah, Chanel, Gucci, <laughs> the whole lot. I walk through this kind of gauntlet, and you can see it's like, as you walk through it, the tentacles are reaching out you know, to try and grab you. Yeah. Unfortunately, I don't have any money. <laughs> it's because it's extremely seductive, you know. You think a bottle of Johnny Walker is just really comfortable, blissful. It's not some poison that's going to send me crazy, which is what it is. Yeah? And the things are going to make you feel more attractive, more comfortable, and everything is loaded with this delusion. Yeah? So you want to keep your attention when I walk along, I just in a town, I just keep my attention on what I need to do. Yeah. Don't need to look in the shops. So guarding, guarding the sense faculties. Yeah. 
I'd really recommend you know you have a sense of awareness about watching television, how much you want to watch, you want to watch the news, you want to watch a program. Fine, don't just become automatic about it. So you just sit there, kind of going gaga <laughs> in front of the box while it kind of does its thing all over you. Passive attention is useless. It's like this is the way to get brainwashed. So maintain vigilance over your attention. Yeah. Then your mind won't feel like an old worn out rag at the end of the day. You'll still have some life in it, some brightness in it, then you can bring it to, to bring it to work on your, in your your welfare. So the last faculty which I keep referring to is energy. I've made a big point out of this because it's something we maybe don't have language for, or don't really uh, understand or recognize. If you do things like Qigong, Tai Chi, you'll certainly know what I mean. You know, these, these are actually very good practices to, to, uh, to refresh and vitalize the energy systems in the body. You know, so I do a little bit myself. Um, and it is very supportive. You begin to really understand what, what energy means, not just as a doing thing, but as a being thing, and vitality. Yeah. And it is connected to um, the body. This is where the body and the mind connect, through the nervous system or through the, the meridians, through the chi, the lines of, 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 of energy in the body. Again, it's a very useful thing to, to bear in mind. Now, apart from anything, apart from meditation, when we try to develop that uh, uh, or access that in our breathing, <clears throat> energy can be led through through the mind, through the speech, and through the body. Kind of, it goes along with all of that: your bodily actions, your speech, and your thoughts. Um, simple things that we try to develop in monasteries as ways of this is, is, you, is uh, a lot of attention on how we move our bodies around. So you don't run, you don't stamp. You know? uh, when you open a door and you close it behind you, don't rush through the door and let it bang. So, the way you teak and you use as much energy as is necessary. So, one of, our, one of the things I try to uh, train and educate people into doing is how to walk softly. You don't need to as you walk across the floor, you know. You can actually put the, put the, the ball of the foot down softly and I, I, can, I can walk quite fast without making hardly any noise at all. Of, you know, I'm a fairly large person, but just through learning how to moderate the energy which you want. So you, with that, you become more mindful, moderating your energy with which you walk. Um, notice the amount of times in a day, or when you're sitting around, you kind of find yourself sort of playing with your hair, fiddling with your tongue, twitching or flicking your arms around, or scratching your head or looking at your watch or, and you don't even know what time it is, you just kind of do these automatic reflex gestures and, and it's kind of twitchy energy. So, you know, learn to compose. 
learn to collect, learn to soften, soften, quiet. Um, when we, in monastic training, we learn also how to speak. Essentially, how much volume do you need? So, generally, we, often, we, we might have a group of 25 people in the room, and you want to be able to talk so that the person you're talking to can hear what you're saying, and nobody else hears it. So you don't blab to the universe, you know. You imagine, you know, when you get a crowd of people, everybody starts talking, gradually the volume goes up and up and up and up and up, because you're trying to override everybody else's voices. Because we haven't got a group agreement to just speak as loud as is necessary to the person who's standing one meter away from you. You don't need to blast them. <laughs> but when we get excited and agitated, that's what we do. Yeah, so you just moderate the energy of speaking. Learn to speak more slowly, clearly. And then you don't waste a lot of words. So these are ways in which you, you, you can use your body and your speech to moderate your energy. Speech is very important because speech immediately conditions the thinking mind. The, what is called the conditioner, that is the way you speak affects the way you think. If you speak hurriedly, you think hurriedly. If you uh, talk aggressively, you think aggressively. If you speak softly and truthfully, your thoughts become soft, truthful. The energy of your, of your speech affects the energy of your thoughts. The topics of your speech affect the topics of your thoughts. Yeah. So much so that he said, you know, you don't even really want to talk about somebody else's thoughts if you don't need to. Because as soon as you start to say, well, she's like this, and she's like that, she never does this, and she never does that, she's always like, ugh, my mind has suddenly gone sour. Instead of saying, well, I have a lot of, I have a lot of compassion for her. You know? <laughs> her life must be very difficult. I think there's many things that perhaps she's unaware of at the moment. And then you don't need to go into detail for go to oh, um, I feel that, that, that if I was to trust somebody, I'd probably find someone other than her. <laughs> so you don't need to, you know, have these poisonous negative thoughts. You don't, so you just be careful about uh, the kind of qualities of intention, energy, and intention you, you bear in your life. A lot of the time, people will gossip about each other. It's very much the case, in, unfortunately it's the case in monasteries, we don't have any television, we don't have any radio, we don't have any music. The only way we can have entertainment is to start talking about other people. <laughs> and sometimes it's kind of quite, you know, interesting anecdotes about somebody, you know, who was doing this or the other. And sometimes it's just kind of basically moaning, you know, or gossiping. Well, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. And it's a really bad habit. Because you come out of that and your mind feels sour and scummy. You know? And yet, there's something very 
exciting about it. You know, a sense of, oh, get quite colourful in caricaturing other people. You know, she's a bad temper, but she's not. You know, you realise it's always untrue. Because nobody is ultimately any one quality. Everybody's a mixture. Yeah. As soon as you say one thing about anybody, already you're telling a lie. Because you can't say she's honest. Or she says she has some honesty and some dishonesty. She has some patience and some impatience. She has some generosity and sometimes not so generous. So eventually everybody is kind of undefinable, really. All you can say is, She's acting in terms of her karma. <laughs> and may she be well. And after that, everything else you say is really telling you something about your own mind. Isn't it? It's telling you something about what you focus on and how, how fault-finding you are or how generous you are or how irritable you are or jealous you are. So you really watch how you speak how you talk about yourself, how you talk about others. And this will definitely affect the, your mind states. Many people experience this thing we call, we call the inner tyrant, which is something in your mind that's always complaining about you. I don't know if you get this one, but if you do something goes, no, it wasn't very good. And then you sit down and meditate and something goes, well, you know, you're not really, you're really, you can't really meditate anyway, and after all, you're falling asleep, aren't you? You don't try very hard, do you? You should be, you should have good samadhi by now. No, give me a break, will you? So you've been listening to Dharma for all these years, you still don't understand a thing. So one way in which you can get rid of that is you don't talk like that <laughs> about anybody or yourself. Don't talk like that. Then you won't have this thought process going on that, that, that is negative. Sustain good intentions, supportive intentions, generous attention, loving attention, sensitive attention, and then you, and the right kind of energy, just the energy that's needed to keep things composed, not pushing too hard, but not being stale, just keeping the energy bright, and then, you know, cultivate that in a day, cultivate the meditation, and eventually the two begin to merge. The meditation and the daily life start to blend and form each other, and you get a lot of insights that way. It's very important because, uh, you know, we can develop insight when we're sitting still in meditation, but there's all kinds of things you don't you don't look into. And this is why you want to really have that mindfulness in your daily life to see the bits you don't see when you're meditating. You know. When you're meditating and nobody's bothering you, you go, Oh, I'm pretty blissful, I'm nearly enlightened right now, you know. And you go out and somebody hits your car and you suddenly realise you're not enlightened at all. <laughs> so it's those times that you wanna have you wanna develop mindfulness around because they can tell you where you're still uh, being reactive and unaware. You you start to develop patience, generosity, kindness, equanimity, dispassion as an ongoing feature of practice. 
And this is these practices, dispassion, detachment, letting go, these are the practices of insight, the development of insight that lead to nirvana, the complete relinquishment of holding on, of obsession, of grasping, of fighting, and defending and owning. And that's where we begin to experience the deep peace of nirvana. So I'll pause there for now, so we have some time for some questions and thank you for giving me your ears for this hour or so and uh, um, you want to give yourself a few moments to think about things and uh, I'd be very happy to, to respond to your questions. Attention, yeah? Mm-hmm. <laughs> the microscopic. <laughs> okay, well right now I can I look at the, the watch on this lady's wrist and I can see the time saying half past nine, I can focus on that. My eyes are still quite good. So I can actually get right down to that particular point and focus on that so everything else is blurred. Yeah? I can actually widen it. I sense her, her arm, her wrist, and then the sense of her whole body, and then the person sitting behind her. And as I do so, gradually the details become um, less defined, and instead I get the sense of like an uh, expanse between my outstretched hands. When it's like this, if I sustain attention like this, I'm just aware of these, the fingers, I can see those, I'm not resting on any particular point in the middle. Everything here is kind of soft. Yeah. And as I do that, I can sense my, my eyes want to focus on a particular point. You keep doing that, the, the, the visual field becomes less intrusive because nothing is, is really, you're not really holding onto anything. When the visual field is less intrusive, it doesn't dig into you. Yeah? So you don't get excited about somebody's wristwatch or their clothes or their hair. It's kind of, huh? So, even so, with this kind of focus, even while seeing things, one remains quite neutral towards the, 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 the visual experience. Yeah? It's just... <laughs> so it's very good for calming. Um, generally when, you, uh, when you're doing sitting meditation or walking meditation, <clears throat> if your attention is quite, is, is narrow, then you'll get sharp definition, precision, 
but you also get a certain intensity to it because it, the energy of attention is, is, is held in so it's quite, it can be quite intense and when you're intense you're also very sensitive so if your energy is more intense then it becomes much more reactive yeah? now if you widen the focus then you get less precision but you also um, get a sense of calm generally the wider the focus the calmer your mind becomes and your energy becomes softer more, more, uh, more spread it more smooth yeah. now you know if you do qigong or something like that you probably would have recognized when you're doing standing qigong or sitting qigong you first of all focus on particular points and you start to get the whole body and you get the sense of the whole body becomes a unified field you're not one particular point but the whole thing so you, you, you know, and you feel very calm in that very refreshed in that now you notice when you, you say you go to the dentist and he's going to do something to your tooth and my tooth and you focus on the tooth you tense up and then it hurts whereas if you focused on you know looking at the ceiling <laughs> then you, you get less acute sensation because your energy is softer so the, the feeling is less intense you get less intense feelings of pleasure and pain and more a sense of equanimity and calm macroscopic they both have their their values but you recognize really that the important thing is to get really fine detail and are not sounds and sights but what's happening in the mind you know? so when, when you actually start to open up you can begin to that feels just a little bit greedy there where's that? You know? so then you can sense when the mind is more calm you sense the places where it's not so calm where it's pushy or greedy or negative and then, uh -huh. and then a very helpful way of, of using attention is when you find a difficult place in your body or in your mind says you feel some pain or some wounding or difficult feeling try to touch it and then widen keep widening keep widening just like you're spreading smoothing it out and then the energy in that area will then be more diffused be less uh, acute and it becomes much more bearable So with these we can change, change our immediate world because uh, intention and e attention and energy affect contact. Contact is two kinds. First of all is the say the physical or the sense base, the sense door is, is, is touched. That's the first kind of contact. The second kind of contact is when the impression of that reaches the heart yeah? now that's the, that's the important one because we, we see and the, the door of the eye is struck and then within then the door of the heart opens and says oh that's nice 
oh, I don't like that. So that's the second kind of contact. Now, if, if your mind state is calm and, and equanimous, then that, the second kind of contact will be less uh, uh, reactive, less affected by greed, hatred and delusion. And so based upon that, you experience yourself as living in a much calmer world. You know? Because all, all the heart really is experiences is, is the impressions that the senses give it. And we can affect those impressions. Another thing that uh, our daily life world very much trains us to do is to live at the edge of our nerves. <laughs> you know, to get quick, jump, so you, you get like you're living at the edge of your nerves, so you can act quickly because the the rule of the game is quicker the better, faster the better. So you're living on a hair trigger yeah? and uh, this naturally means your attention is going to be pretty skippy, you know, it's not going to be very deep. So again, you want to, you want to counteract that when, when you can in meditation just by almost drawing yourself back, drawing yourself in so you're not really just right at the edge of things but almost just step back in yourself let things come to you, don't reach out for them. So. Practicing what? It's a, it's a Hawaiian word. Oh, yeah. Ho'opono Polo. Yeah. Um, that man was sent to one of the worst uh, asylum, mental asylums, which nobody wanted to work there. So his friend asked him whether he was interested to go there. So he went there, and uh, a lot of people could not go there for long. Worst criminals over there. <clears throat> so what the man did, he put the files of the inmates there, and every day he would just look at the file and he would just say a few words: "I love you, forgive me, sorry, thank you." Just these four words over and over again, and something amazing happened. Doing that, by doing that, a lot of the patients, they left the asylum and they got stopped. So in the end, the asylum was closed down. <laughs> <laughs> so I downloaded um, this doctor, um, his name is Hewlett or Landview, I can not remember. He's Hawaiian and it's very interesting that he doesn't believe in uh, compassion as in two persons, you know, but he believes in the whole cosmos, whole cosmic thing, 
like if your heart has got nature love and you have a sense of humility to say sorry to people, you know the, the energy field will change. So it's very interesting. I, and then he says it works on the unconscious mind a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So I think uh, he doesn't believe like, oh, I'm helping you, that kind of what to him is bullshit, he said. So he believes in working on oneself first before you can really help the others. He said it's because we want to keep people in the silence, so we keep them there, you know, thinking that they are bad, they are what. But once he started to do that, you know, things change, the whole energy. Right, right. Yeah. yeah, because what's happening is that our intentions are based on fear and uh, uh, negativity. You know, it's not necessarily, we don't deliberately put people in asylum, we not necessarily have ill will, but we're frightened, we're anxious, we want to put somewhere safe, we're not going to bother us. And that, that intention isn't, isn't the best, you know, it's not exactly the intention of love. <laughs> so, uh, and so you can imagine if you are, I'm sure that, you know, as human beings are, we are sensitive, sometimes our minds become unbalanced. But if people just keep giving you fear and ill will, it's not going to, you know, help you any, is it? I remember somebody decided they tried to do a, um, uh, an experiment to really check out what it was like to be in the asylum. So they they, they pretended to be, you know, a clinically um, mentally unstable in order to get into the asylum. So they got in there pretending to be clinically insane or disturbed and then checked things out. And after one they said, no, actually I'm all right, I'm, I'm really sane. They said, yeah, okay, you're really sane. They all say that, yeah. And he couldn't get out. <laughs> once, you've been, once people decided that you're insane, there's no way you can prove you're not. <laughs> there's no way. So who decides? <laughs> Who's crazy and who isn't? You know? Actually, Bhante in, uh, in the Dharma, uh, is there any emphasis on the unconscious mind? I mean, besides doing, you know, Vipassana, Samatha, per se, you know, is there anything that you can find that uh, you work on the unconscious mind? Or do you think, like, uh, the Abhitana we make in the office, is it a kind of well, you know, the language you see is slightly different. You don't really talk about unconscious and conscious in, in the Buddhist speech, but you talk about things like latent tendencies, dormant tendencies, um, different levels of consciousness. Yeah? So, um, in, with meditation and Dhamma practice, you're beginning to uh, you get in touch with what we might call latent tendencies, that everyone has these latent tendencies they're not necessarily um, conscious of them or aware of them uh, but they're, they're there they, they, they have to be cleared because otherwise they, they will sooner or later they will come to life yeah. so the way we do this is through um, resolution you know so if you determine a particular thing like patience or generosity that means that sooner or later you're going to come into contact with your impatience <laughs> If you determine goodwill, sooner or later you're going to come into contact with something that says, no, yeah. it brings it up. Yeah. 
so that the very determinations we make towards enlightenment bring up all our unenlightened qualities come up. That's sometimes why it's kind of confusing, you know, in that uh, when, when you, like you, particularly in monastic life, you develop a strong resolution towards enlightenment, and you find all these very unenlightened mind states arise because you, in fact, you're dredging up the latent tendencies from the mind. And as they become more, so the, the further practice is to make the unconscious conscious. Yeah? So the, the dark or the afflictive forces have to first of all be made conscious in order to practice with them in a conscious way. The practice is, is metta, kindness, the practice is calming, and the practice is insight. So, and then you, you develop and you hold those, those unskillful intentions, you restrain them with resolution, with sense restraint, with discipline, things like that. So you both hold it and restrain it, and then you work on it, you calm it, and you purify it. So any kind of resolution that you make will always be a testing ground for your, for your uh, draw up these qualities in your mind. That's why Aditana is such a vital parameter. It's like ten times, you know, it magnifies all the other parameters by ten because it suddenly puts the pressure on. It says, you said that, you know, you're not going to say an unkind word for this week, you know. And this means <laughs> you really start to see the negative qualities in your mind more clearly. And then you've got to, oh, right, clear it, clear it. So you make these resolutions, even if you can't keep them, then you do the best you can because you become aware then of what you're not, of, of these unconscious forces. None of us, I'm sure, wish to, wish to experience ill will, guilt, regret, but we do. So, in a way, you've got to kind of draw it out in order to, to take the poison out. You have to draw it up and to clear it out. That's what resolution does. Yeah. And one, one year I, did, I made a resolution not to complain in my mind about anything. Not, not just verbally, but even not to think any complaining thoughts. <laughs> not to say, oh, the suit's too cold, or he talks too much, or who does she think she is? Not to, not to think anything like that. It was really powerful just to see this, this kind of irritated mind, you know, complaining all the time. But I didn't notice it before. Make a sense of it. Starts that check, and then because of that, checking it just, I had to instead experience the sense of things I dis experiencing what I dislike, and not complaining about it. Instead, just letting go, letting go, letting go. So what arose out of that was a, a mind of compassion and equanimity just through drawing up the poison of ill will and clearing it out, what's left when the mind is free from ill will is compassion, kindness, equanimity. Whereas if you say, if you try to be compassionate, that's a good idea, but 
it becomes idealistic rather than real, really experienced. To really experience compassion, you have to witness the negativity that's latent in the mind. It's not deliberate negativity, but the unconscious negativity, you draw it up. And that's what resolution does. If you want to see your negativity, just determine to get up half an hour earlier than you did yesterday. You'll find it.
you relax in your, in your nervous system, which is what we've been talking about today, then you find that it, it drains away, residues drain away. And so that, and then you begin to, to experience um, the quality, that's the first, you might say, of actually uh, draining the thoughts or draining the emotions down to the sea, gets this kind of more fundamental state of, of evenness yeah, of mind. And then um, see what is it that causes the mind to run, to jump up. Yeah. So you see, oh, it jumps up, isn't it? It jumps up to defend itself. You shouldn't say that to me. Or it jumps up to, I want one of those. Or it jumps up to the, it's my turn, it's my turn. You know? Or it jumps up to the, you, you, you hit my car, it jumps up, it jumps up. You see, when can you get to the place where it's about to jump and just <laughs> sit down? Then you can still you can still address the same problem. You address it from a, a mind that hasn't jumped up. You say, um, I don't just you know you see my car. <laughs> you see like the dent in it now. And, uh, how do you deal with that? Uh, I, you know, it feels like you just drove into my car. You do. Let's be sensible about it. So you, you, know, you, can, you can deal with these issues without jumping up and you know, losing yourself, losing your mind, losing your mind, going crazy. Mm-hmm. And it's not easy because the whole of our, of our, our instincts is triggering, triggered jumping. But first of all, you start to come back into your centre and then you stay in your centre. Because I mean, one of the things we start to really develop in reflection is everything is, is changing. You can't have anything, so there's nothing really to jump up about. <laughs> yeah. So obviously, in Buddhism, there is no other way to find train except meditation. Well, it depends. Where you it depends on you on meditation. The Buddha didn't use the word cultivation of mind. <laughs> and you cultivate it because the mind is there with speech, the mind is there with action, the mind is there when you're busy, the mind is there when you're meditating. All the time you try to get in touch with it, be conscious of it, cultivate it. I mean, that's, that's what the Buddha recommended for us to do. It's not, this doesn't mean everybody's doing it. it. Certainly doesn't mean all monks are doing it. But that's what the Buddha recommended. Cultivate. Bhavana. So, you're going to have to be a monk to do that. If you've got a mind. just <laughs> Doing good. Yeah. Cultivate by just being positive. Communicate, being 
comes back to that of sitting down quietly meditate on. There are there are moments that's like that, no meditation, but they just cultivate each other. That's it. Uh, whether you call it meditation or walking meditation, or I do not know It's not cultivating, just doing, just like practicing, experiencing it rather than just having to sit with someone and things that went wrong. You have to get to that stage in order to. You know, you say the big picture is cultivating Paramita all the time. You know? So certainly, you know, service, action, commitment, you know, generosity, uh, service to others, these are those healthy things. Because all the time you're developing particular qualities of intention. And that's essentially, this is where uh, karma is resolved. You know? So developing skills of intention. I think the thing I would say, and it, it, you can't judge other people, you know, you don't know where they are. Really but what, um, you know, meditation can help us, you know, sitting skills can help us to do is to become aware of the latent density, um, where we might not be aware of that because we keep on kind of surface activity. And so, also, you can want to be able to go into the places where it's quiet to draw up you know, what, what unresolved karma is. So, to my mind, both, both are very important. You know, certainly, you can become a meditation obsessive where all you want to do is shut down and be quiet and get low. That, that doesn't work. It's an eight-fold part. No, no. What do you mean, people who have um, 
some sort of autistic people, and they can be, or people who do brilliant mathematics, you know, people who can't even talk straight, and their minds can do amazing mathematical feats of memory, and yet they're emotionally really dysfunctional. You know? Chitta, see, the chitta is not the brain. Chitta is just the, is the, the, uh, the active aspect of mental consciousness. It's not the brain. So, brain can be active in terms of the emotions, because all this is mental consciousness emotions, intentions, thoughts, intelligence, all that. And chitta carries with it all the inheritance of previous lives. So, you know. We're all, we're all carrying something, we're all particularly, you know, not just mass parents. I guess with uh, using particular words, you just you can use any word or no words. It's just a, a way. No, but when we sit down, we yeah. come. Why is certain teaching? Is that 
you wanted to try to fix things in our mind, talk in our things. Why? In our mind. Why you use the words? Why, 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 it's to, well, use the word purely to establish um, a focus, so the thinking mind doesn't run away. And then you can use different words because different words can carry particular nuances, particular uh, impressions. So, but it doesn't really matter which which word you use. I don't. I've never heard anybody use that one, but. Oh, Dhamma Guy. Oh, Look at the results. Yeah, if you get good results, then uh, it's worth doing. But you don't want to make anything too specific about the words because that's more that's more tantra, more like tantra, and then it gets very uh, it can be quite dangerous unless you have a very good teacher. I was a monk. Very long, 20 years. It's like they taught me to use this word. Yeah. Budo or Arahant. Yes. Budo. Yeah, a lot. I a lot of the forest teachers of Thailand use that because it's bud or it fits the breathing. You know, the bud is bright. It's for in breathing. Oh, it's soft and long for out breathing. So it's a way of using vitaka to label, to, to stick the thinking mind onto the thought. You know, so the mind doesn't run away. But eventually that sort of dissolves, disappears. You know, so it's purely there as like a scaffolding, as a piece of structure to support something. When the mind is strong, then that, that falls away. You can let it pass, falls away, the mind becomes quiet. Okay?